to Romans chapter 8, and we are going to finish this chapter this morning with that final paragraph that I think fits best. We've looked at it for two weeks, just beginning it, but I think it fits best if we can combine all three of the main points that emerge from this passage into one message. And if it goes a few minutes longer, that's okay, because we're feeding you, right? So every time that we're feeding you, it can go longer, and that's okay. These are verses that are designed to give confidence to the people of God. Not a confidence as the world tries to give. Not a confidence in ourselves, self-confidence. You know, you hear the rhetoric, you can do it. Look within yourself, find the strength to do what you need to do. Or the infamous lie that we tell children, you can do anything you set your mind to. It's just not true. Not every child can do everything. It's not a self-confidence that we're looking for. And it's not a situational confidence that we just say, well, things will get better. Or you just got to have faith that Things will work out. Faith in what? I don't know. Faith in whom? Who knows? But just have this general faith that things will work out. But we know things don't always work out. And even as we look at the situation in our world now, there are people who are concerned. Maybe you've talked to some of them. Maybe you've heard from some of them. They see the situation brewing, of course, in the Middle East and with Israel and other places, Russia and China, there's talk of major war coming. Some Christians are even unsettled, wondering if this could be the end, wondering what's happening with that, and it's actually causing discomfort within them and a lack of rest. But God's people are to be a confident people. Because their confidence is in God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the security and safety, eternal safety of their position in Christ Jesus, no matter what happens to them or around them. It is a God-directed gospel confidence. That's the conclusion that Paul is drawing in verses 31 through 39. So let's read those. We'll pray, and then I'll share with you the three main points I want to bring out, and we'll walk through each one of them. Let's actually begin in verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's just pause and ask God's blessing on these words. Father, help us now as we bring this section to a close, as we bring this chapter to a close, to this gospel crescendo that you have designed for us here and breathed out by your spirit through the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. God, we know these are verses that your people have clung to in the darkest of times throughout all these centuries. Help us to be among that number now. Encourage your people, God, please. Encourage them and help. Help us to become a confident people in you through Jesus and what you've done for us. And if left to me, it just cannot happen, but I pray that you would gift me and by your spirit, there would be, even this morning, a demonstration of your spirit in the preached word in order that your spirit would help your people. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Three main points that we will bring out of these, I think, three natural transitions in verses 31 to 39. The first one is in verses 31 to 32, one result of the gospel. What God has done for us in Christ is that we are an indestructible people. We are indestructible Then in verses 33 to 34, another result of the gospel designed to build confidence in us is that we are uncondemnable. We just simply cannot be condemned in Christ Jesus. And then in verses 35 through 39, another result is that we are inseparable from the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. His steadfast love, his covenant faithful love to his people, we cannot be separated from that. So we are indestructible, we are uncondemnable, and we are inseparable from the love of God. What you will notice, I hope, as you read through these verses, is that there are no commands here. There are no imperatives. There's nothing for you to obey in these verses. 
These are just things, listen to this, that God wants you to know. These are just truths that God just simply, what do we do with this, God? What do we do with these truths? Here's what you do. You know them and you believe them. And you live like these are true. You rest in them. You find peace in them. Rejoice in them. These are just simple facts in questions and answers, but what they propose, these questions, these answers that he gives, what they propose, these are just facts, these are truths about the people of God for us to enjoy. You're indestructible, you're uncondemnable, and you're inseparable from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the first point. Friends, know this. As a child of God, you are indestructible. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is on our side, if God is on behalf of us, then who can be against us? Answer, no one. Remember, what Paul has been explaining in this whole letter, leading up to these verses, what Paul has been explaining to the people of God is that God indeed is for you. That God is for you and he demonstrated that when he gave up his son for you, you see. That's why the cross, of course, of Jesus is mentioned in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that is for the church. How will he not also with him graciously give the church everything? You see, all these promises, how will he not fulfill them if he has given his son for us and to secure these promises? See, God is for us, friends. The whole premise of the gospel for the people of God is that God is for us, just as we read in Psalm 46. He is our God. He is our refuge. He is our strength. God is for us, you see, and it builds this confidence no matter what happens. Even if the earth gives way, God is for us. We are confident in that. He is the God, remember from verse 30, who foreknew foreknew us in love and predestined us in love and called us in love and justified us in love and glorified us. He is for us. And if that is the case, and it is, that's what Paul's proven. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us. Now, it is important to understand exactly what Paul means here when he says no one can be against us. We're not saying, and Paul isn't implying, that the church of Jesus Christ doesn't have its opponents, doesn't have those beings and those people who are against it. Of course, we have the devil. He is the adversary. That's his name. And his mission is to oppose God and his people. He opposes us. He has fiery darts that he fires at the people of God. He hates us. Peter says he roams around like a a lion seeking someone to devour. We have an adversary. 
And he has many followers, demonic forces, really a third of the angelic creation who followed him in defiance of God. They are against us. Principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this world, all under the control of the prince of the power of the age, all of the, under the control of the God of this age. They are opposed to us. They are against us. Not only that, Jesus made it clear that the world system itself and its influencers, the people in this world who are not with Christ are certainly against Christ. And that the world would hate us the same way it hated him. And we can look back over 2,000 years of church history and right now church present and see around this world Christians opposed People against Christians, people hating Christians, people imprisoning Christians, people putting Christians to death. So what does Paul mean when he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? With the implied answer, no one. It means, friends, that no matter what the world does or the demonic forces do against the church or the devil does against the church, no matter what they do, they cannot win. They cannot destroy the people of God. They're indestructible. Their souls are saved souls. So no matter what the world or the devil or demonic forces throws at the people of God, even if they kill the people of God, listen to this, they can't destroy the souls of the people of God, nor can they remove off of the people of God what God has placed on them, and that is his eternal love. Greater is he than in, that is in you than he that is in the world. And what a marvelous story and an account it is to read of Job and to see that the devil himself had to seek permission to do anything to Job. And that God put the barriers around what he could do and kept the devil on a leash. To just show and demonstrate to the people of God, you have an adversary, the devil, but you needn't fear him. I control him. And ultimately, he serves my eternal purposes in all that he does. You see, if this God, the creator God, the only true God, the all-powerful God, all-knowing God, everywhere present God is for us, then who can be against us ultimately? Answer is no one. Jesus told his disciples as he sent them out, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You have confidence now, my disciples, in the face of opposition, when you hear the clamor of the world that doesn't like you and doesn't want you around when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and even when they kill you, fear them not because they have no access to your soul or the salvation that I provide for you, says God. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, was imprisoned on his second imprisonment that we know about. This was his last one. He knew he was going to be put to death this time. In church history and tradition tells us he was beheaded for proclaiming the gospel. 
And he wrote to Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18, he said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Now think about that for a second. He was already telling Timothy, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. I mean, I'm about to be killed for the name of Jesus Christ. So what does he mean when he says the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed? That was an evil deed. To kill the apostle Paul, that was an evil deed. What, is, what does he mean here? Well, when they kill me, and through that evil deed, he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. You see how that works? Our souls, our eternal futures, our glorification, our inheritance, everything we've studied, our relationship with God, his love for us, indestructible. No one can touch it. No one can harm us in that way. And Jesus promised the indestructibility of his church, not just of individuals, but of the church itself. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for 2,000 years, that promise has held true. Not only has he continued to build his church, we're evidence of that. We all believe in Jesus. We're all part of his church that he's building and continuing to do so. And even though it has faced opposition right down to this day in every single age and many times under entire nations and empires that tried to wipe out the church, they were unsuccessful because the church itself until the time when Jesus reappears is indestructible. The church just cannot be stopped. The church cannot be destroyed. Now you can see then how that is to build confidence in the people of God. To walk through whatever they're walking through. And to go out on any endeavor to which God has called them to go to. This fact that God is for us and therefore no one can be against us, even if they kill us, they can't destroy us. This very fact has been the fuel that has supported uh, dangerous gospel global missions for 2,000 years. It kept the people of God from being quiet and not speaking the truth of the gospel in times when they knew they were going to be killed. It carries on to this day. People bringing the gospel to places where sometimes, if we're honest, we hear about where they're going, we're thinking, man, I would never want to do that. What a terrifying prospect. That's not terrifying. Not if you have a good grip and a good grasp on the indestructibility of the church and the promise of its furtherance and a lack of fear of those who can only harm the body. That's the best they can do. And I'm getting a new one of those anyway, so... Whatever. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are indestructible people in that way. That's why these are verses meant to encourage his people. Think of that word, encourage. Put courage in the people of God when they are losing courage. You open up this passage, verses 31 to 39. You read it, let God by his spirit encourage you. Put courage into your soul, you see. We're studying about the nation of Israel and 
It's history on Sunday evenings, and we're looking at the book of Ezra, and that, of course, is the account of God bringing back his people into their land, resettling the land, preparing it for the Messiah's arrival. They had been in Babylonian captivity, and then under Silas and the Persian Empire, they're sent back. They get back to the land, and they lay the foundation of the altar and establish sacrifices and begin to worship God, and then they begin to lay the foundation of the temple and are going to be building that up. And as soon as they're doing that, opposition comes in. They're adversaries. Trying to get them to stop. These adversaries actually write to the king of Persia at that time who wasn't Cyrus. We were beyond Cyrus by that point. And he's writing to this, uh, this uh, king and telling him, these people, they're, they're rebuilding this land. If they do that, they're going to oppose you. They're going to cause problems. And so the king said, you're going to stop. The people out of fear, Ezra tells us, stopped. And the work ceased for decades. And Ezra sent, or God sent in the prophet Haggai. And in chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, this is what he said to the people. He said, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, you see. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord used that and stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You see how that one phrase, I am with you, and I control the leader of the empire, He is my servant accomplishing my good. You don't fear them. You fear me. And I'm saying, get to work on the temple and I will be with you, you see. It's the most encouraging message the people of God can have. God is with us. Therefore, who can be against us? And friends, make no mistake. Christians in the United States have enjoyed much liberty in the things that we've said and done with very little hostility from the people around us. That is changing rapidly. The world hates the righteousness of God. They hate the truth of the scriptures. They are becoming more and more emboldened and more and more hostile and gaining more and more control and spheres and areas of influence that are going to be problematic for the people of God. You see some of the ridiculousness that is happening among public universities across this country, the future generation of our nation, the literally crazy ways in which they think about things and view things. They're on campuses right now supporting Hamas, of all things. They're ignorant. They've got TikTok educations. They have no understanding of reality, and they are, make no mistake, under the control of the evil one. They are the future generation of persecutors against the church of Jesus Christ. It's happening, it's coming. But we needn't fear. For our God is with us. 
We don't stop the work that we're called to do because our God is for us. If our God is for us, our God is for us, then who can be against us? No one and nothing. We are indestructible. In verse 32, that indestructibility, as I mentioned, is rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, look to the cross when you begin to fear. See what God through his son has done for you. Be encouraged in knowing this, that in what he displayed, the love he displayed in that cross for you, and that cross itself secured your eternal future and the promises of God for you, and therefore you never need to fear. He will graciously give you everything he has promised to give you in the end. And that leads us naturally then to the next point. From verses 33 through 34. As God's people, we are uncondemnable. Some of you need to hear this this morning. In your ongoing battle with sin, of which I am no stranger. There's nothing I'm unfamiliar with or unacquainted with. The daily harassment of the flesh and the regrettably many and constant failures in sin. So with that, can, I mean, I understand that God's for us and these enemies can't oppose us, can't ultimately destroy us, but frankly, can I destroy myself with my own sin? Could my sin somehow mess up this whole deal? Listen to what he says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, you're uncondemnable. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Remember, a couple weeks ago, we showed that when he talks about God's elect, he's talking about God's foreknown, those he knew from before the foundation of the world and set his love on them, etc. Who can stand before God and bring a charge against his people that will stick? Oh, God, didn't you see what, what your child did this week? I mean, is this the one you're going to let into your righteous kingdom? And look what he or she has done. Look at their failures. Look at their sins. Look at their high-handed sins. Look at the sins they don't even know they're committing. Look at their constant failures. Look at their forgetfulness in your things and their lack of love for you as they should have. Look at these, look at these sometimes downright faithless looking people. They live even sometimes as though you don't even exist. I mean, frankly, friends, if somebody knew who knew everything about us, went before God, they would have not just one charge, they would have many. They would have charge against charge against charge against the people of God. They wouldn't be saying something untrue. 
It is no, our defense would be, well, that's not true. Because when we're honest with ourselves, we know what's true. We know we're sinners and failures. But see, what he says here is that who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Is there a judge greater than God? He rendered the verdict because of his son for us. He is the one, when we believed the promise of his son, he's the one who justified us. So no charge can be brought against us that would stick. I was reminded even thinking about this of John Gotti of all people. You know, the mobster John Gotti, if you know anything, maybe it's because I'm from the Chicago area, I'm more familiar with it. He was known as the Teflon Don, ruled over the Gambino crime family for a number of times, and the FBI were against him. They kept trying to throw all these charges at him. He'd get in court and he'd walk out. They named him the Teflon Don because nothing would stick against him, you see. Nothing can stick against the people of God, and it isn't because it's not true. It's because, look at what he says. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Listen, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus died for the sins that are true, the charges that could be brought against us. Christ Jesus is the one who died for those. And in case you ever doubted the validity of his death on the cross, more than that, Paul says, he was raised. demonstration that what he had done on the cross was sufficient for his people, was effective for his people, that all of their sins, all of their iniquities, past and present and future, were laid upon him. He was raised, Paul said, back in chapter 5, for our justification, you see. Not only that, He is at the right hand of God. And he is there doing what? He is interceding for us. You see, friends, we've learned that in justification, when God justifies you, it's not because he just forgets your sins. It's because he laid your sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he paid the penalty for them. So it's as though he never sinned. But then when you believe on him, he imputes to you. Remember this? He credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. You have Christ's righteousness, not your own, before the throne of God. So when he sees you, he does see you, but he sees Christ's righteousness upon you. You don't need any more righteousness than you already have before the judgment seat of God. You are a justified Christian and no one can override that declaration of righteousness. It's amazing. It's like you can't erase justification. It's not possible to erase justification from someone's record and then recondemn them. It's a once for all time act, not just for the sins, you know, friends, like you committed before you were saved. And then when you believed in Jesus, now it's like, okay, I hope I got to really, I hope I don't sin too much now and erase this. No, justification is a one time act for all time. And as long as Christ is alive and is in heaven and is at the right hand of God in that position of authority and power and glory and all of his shining, spotless righteousness, which is yours. As long as that is the case, you're a justified person, and that's never going to change. That's the whole point. 
why we sing when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. What do I do? Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin, you see. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's how it works. You are uncondemnable. I love the account in Zechariah chapter 3. We have such a beautiful picture of this. I have the verses, I think, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, bringing charges. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. That's us, by the way, in our natural state. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Friends, what a picture of how this works. You were clothed in filthy garments. Jesus was in pure garment. Jesus went to the cross and he took your filthy garments upon himself. He clothed himself in your filth, in my filth. And he went to the cross and God poured out on him all of the deserved judgment and wrath that was due you and me for those filthy garments. And then he died. And he rose again, and every time a sinner comes to him with all their sin, and they say, Jesus, save me from my sins. I believe in you, save me from my sins. The Lord himself clothes them in beautiful, pure, righteous garments, and nothing they do from that point on can Stain those garments. They're pure. You are cleansed, Christian. Sin is serious. Sin is wrong. The people of God should repent of all their known sins and fight against sinful desires. The people of God should strive for holiness and obedience in every area of their life. Sin can ruin aspects of your life, even as a Christian. It can destroy relationships, ruin churches, even cause damage to yourself and to your body. Sin can rob you of peace and joy and comfort and hope, but friends, sin cannot condemn you. Because Christ Jesus was condemned for us. Nothing can change your justified status. You are uncondemnable. And then finally, friends, from God's love in Christ, we are inseparable. 
He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or or naked, uh, famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who or what can separate us here from the love of Christ? He just got done saying Christ Jesus was the one who died for you in love. Think of the reasoning behind that. If Christ Jesus died for his people in this love, how could they ever be separated from that love that led him to the cross and walked him through bearing the wrath of God for them? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Even this morning, you see, friends, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, where? Right here. And that love is so great and so powerful. It is an eternal love from which nothing can separate you. Tell me that's not a confidence-boosting truth. Even if we become like sheep for his sake to be slaughtered, which many Christians have had to endure for centuries. All of these situations and things that Paul mentions here as possibilities to separate us from the love of Christ and the love of God in Christ Jesus for us, all of them when a Christian is walking through, it might appear to a watching world that God doesn't love them. If God loved them, why are they in this hospital room? If God loved them, why did they lose that loved one? If God loved them, why don't they have everything they need or all their heart's desires? If God loved them, why would he allow people to march them out on a beach, line them up, tie it up, and then cut off their heads on video for everybody in the world to see? Doesn't look like love to the world. And friends, when people walk through dark times, it feels to them like God doesn't love them. They can be tempted to think that. He's not hearing me. He's not answering me. He's not helping me. Certainly, he doesn't love me. If he loved me, this wouldn't happen to me. But you see, friends, that's where the gospel and your knowledge of it has to kick in. You gotta know that God loves you eternally. That anything you're walking through, he's working for this aim of bringing you safely into his kingdom with great joy for all eternity. That anything you're walking through, any suffering, isn't worth comparing with the glory that he's going to reveal to you, you see. This is where your gospel knowledge, your faith has to kick in. Your faith, your trust in what he has said. He loves me. He's made Loving promises to me that he will keep no matter how this turns out, you see. The devil wants you to think that 
God has stopped loving you. But that's a lie of the devil. God says over and over again to his people, over and over again, I love you. With a love so high and deep and wide, you can't understand it. You're encompassed in it for all times. It, it's, you're always bathing in the love of God. There's no getting out of my love for you, you see. This is where our faith in God's love kicks in and we use passages like this to ask the Spirit to re-encourage our souls and to remind us of God's love. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He made up a word. Super conquerors is the word. You're a conqueror and then some, you see. He doesn't just bring you through it. God brought me to it, he'll bring me through it. No. He who conquer through it. You're victorious over it, you see. Whatever it is, you're a conqueror through his love. This is how people face the most trying of circumstances with this faith in their mind, in their heart, and they're encouraged. And that's when the watching world, as First Peter reminds us in his letter, Give us a reason for this hope that you have within you. With all of this happening to you, give us the reason for this hope that is within you. And that's when you can articulate the gospel love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And he brings, friends, this grand conclusion that he himself had come to this conclusion in verse 38. And you ask yourself, am I convinced of this like Paul's convinced of it? After giving it time, after giving it thought, after walking through various circumstances and seeing God's love showed up, my faith grow, have I come to this conclusion? Could you say this, verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the very words of our God. Let's pray. We praise you, God. We thank you for this undeserved mercy and grace of yours, the love that's on us right now. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your intercession on our behalf. At your Father's right hand. We know that there is no other method of salvation that we could apply in order to be right with you. It had to be your gospel through your Son applied by your Spirit. We praise you for it. And even God now as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, may your Spirit work in us the realities that the cross has brought. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.